This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about how climate change might affect our ecosystems here in Moab, and what that might mean for all the services those ecosystems provide. It's a good show. Stay with us. As a scientist who's now been doing climate change work for uh, 15 years or so, I have lots of concerns weekly. Let's put it that way. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to stop warming at this point in time. Uh, we're all going to live our lives in a world that keeps warming. But the question that we have before us now is: Can we do something proactively to to put a cap on that and to lay the groundwork to reduce that effect in the long term? Today on Science Moab, we have a frank conversation about climate change and how it is projected to influence the ecosystems around us with Dr. Scott Farenberg. Dr. Farenberg is an assistant professor at New Mexico State University. Dr. Farenberg has studied global change in vegetation types across the West and most recently here in Moab. Here we talk about how scientists test how future conditions might change ecosystems, and we explore how our future climate might change the vegetation and ecosystems we see around us. We begin with Dr. Farenberg describing what future climate is projected to be like in the Southwest. Invariably, the world gets warmer, and the world of the Southwest gets warmer. Uh, there is no projection, either low-end or high-end, that does not involve some substantial amount of warming in the average annual temperature. And that is something that we, temperature projections are something we're more trusting of out of the models. Precipitation is a lot harder to model. Um, so what that will mean for precipitation um, is a debate. But more variability is an outcome of all of those models. So, um, you know, more more intense drought, more intense rainfall periods of time, all of that is um, inherent in those models because as we warm the atmosphere, there's more energy, there's more variability. Some models say some portions of the Southwest can get wetter. Some say that there'll be less rain. The thing to factor in is in a warmer world when the temperature's higher, even a, even a bit more rainfall still can leave you in a deficit compared to historical average because the warmer it is, the more water evaporates the faster it evaporates because the air has a better ability to hold water. So what we prepare for, even though the models can disagree on that, is a warmer, drier future. And that's why most people anticipate it being drier, even if more rain might fall. You talked about the average, and I just think that's interesting to compare it to in the Southwest because, you know, living here, it's so obvious that each year it, it fluctuates a lot. It's a very hot, very dry place, and so even if it deviates from the average, like is that a big deal for this area? It is. You know, variability is weather. It, when you when you think of the long term, variability is your weather patterns 
uh, of a year. And that is an important thing to, to pull apart when you talk about this for, for someone who doesn't know the difference between climate and weather. And that's of no fault of anybody who doesn't study this topic because uh, it's really not well explained, right? So climate is the long-term trends in all things that involve, uh, or long-term trend in temperature, uh, relative humidity, precipitation, um, even, even UV radiation, some people include as a climate variable. These are things that we put a line through all that variability. So in the short span of time where you're observing the world, variability around it may seem like it hits lots of extremes. Well, just imagine if that trend where all of that is tracking around just keeps going up. In 20 years from now, it sits at some substantial notch higher. The variation, the highs and the lows can be quite substantial. At some point in time, a lot of what you might have considered a low uh, or what you might consider a low for a future condition may actually just be getting back down to the average. And an example of that was in the last six to seven years across the Northeast, there's been some very cold winter weather. Uh, scientists dug into that long-term record and told people, unfortunately, what they were considering to be this deep freeze that CNN and stations wouldn't stop talking about actually was still above average by conditions of the 60s and 70s. So people's baseline has shifted so much that what we perceive as normal variability is still outside what we historically would expect without human-caused climate change. Easy example. Um, weather, var the variation that is weather, when you wake up in the morning, it helps you determine what clothing you put on. The climate is what helps you know what clothes you need to keep and buy in, in your, and have in your closet. And that is the reason why I could tell you if you're moving somewhere in the country what type of clothing you likely need but I won't tell you what days you'll put them on. And so when people cherry pick that variability to this weather to try to refute climate change, they're conflating two things that aren't the same. Just because the climate's changing doesn't mean it won't get cold. And in a warmer world, we can even expect uh, summer days that are well below average in, in temperature to continue somewhere in the future, right? We'll have below average summer temperatures at, at points in time, even in a warmer world. Uh, because that's weather and climate is the trend in it. And if we look at any metric, any metric, that would be that trend, whether it's the atmospheric air temperature, landmass air temperature, ocean temperature, how much ice is there on the planet, how much, um, how much water vapor is there in the atmosphere, all of them point to warming world. There, so uh, cherry picking one of those and arguing that it has some sort of lag in it, for example, or a pause is ignoring the rest because collectively all of them are constantly indicating the world's warmer. So that's these are the rules of thumb. How do you tell the difference between climate and weather, and how do we know that it's warming? Well, the, all the indicators tell us it's a warmer world. The southwest, then, is going to increasingly get warmer. The average is then going to increasingly get warmer. Um, what does that mean for the ecosystems? Well, that is a question mark that we are trying to put an answer to. A general rule of thumb, I think, when we think about a warmer world, warming world from what we know already from experiments and observations is more, uh, more potential for loss of key ecosystem functions. Um, so this is a big question, and I'm just going to jump in at a high level that integrates them. In, in a particular location under warmer conditions over some length of time, because it relates so much to water availability, the warmer it is, the more water evaporates warm and dry typically go together in the record, both weather and climate record. Cold and wet go together in that record. You rarely will say, we had a cold, wet year when you integrate across the whole time span. 
So as a result of that, meaning warmer tends to mean drier. You get less plant growth and you get more susceptibility to disturbances, which means total less function overall, right? We have less productivity, we have less stability, uh, and we have more danger of some sort of disturbance or an event that will change the system to a state that we don't want it to be in. There are plants, I can think of plants just south of the Colorado Plateau that are evolved for those kinds of conditions. And so is it just assumed that as things warm, we just lose function? Or is could things come in and replace those function being like the different things that an ecosystem does, like you were saying, stabilized soils and cycle nutrients and stuff? Is it assumed that we will just lose these functions? We, I don't, <clears throat> wouldn't say we'll lose them entirely. That, I don't think that would ever happen as long as people can survive these temperatures. Other things will survive them. And you're right that there are organisms all over the earth involved in the conditions that we anticipate to be the future norm for the Colorado Plateau or even for a hot, really, really hot desert like the Sonoran. Um, there are plants evolved to hotter temperatures than the Sonoran Desert. Uh, the issue of whether we will lose plants in a given location comes down to the specific traits and tolerances of that species in question. All systems on Earth have species that are living near their edge in that regard. Um, and so, so their edge of being able to survive in yeah, a specific or place. Yeah, or, or increasing the variability they experience or pushing them in one direction, colder or warmer, for example, could push them out of the system. Uh, because species have, you know, we, we describe that as a niche in ecology, and the characteristics of the niche are going to include climate and nutrients availability and, and interactions with other organisms. All of that stuff is on the table when you're wondering what will happen as you warm the world up. So there's many ways that a, a plant, if we're using an example of a plant species, could be disadvantaged or potentially even promoted as we change the world. Um, but because any number of species that are currently in the system will be disadvantaged, we're going to lose some. Anything that might creep up from a southern location to take root on the Colorado Plateau and fill that open niche, that takes time. And we're warming the world at a rate so much faster than it has ever been warmed before. Uh, the life history and, and, and natural history of most of these organisms will not allow them to move that fast. They will not span that gap to match their niche as it moves north because it's moving at such a fast rate now. And that is the thing that concerns us scientifically and as resource managers. Um, there are a lot of perennial grass species across the West. On perennial the meaning Perennial meaning that it should be there year after year, come from the same root below ground, right? There's a, there's a number of them that we're concerned about under climate warming scenarios that we think we will be losing abundance over the near future and potentially seeing their range shift off of the Colorado Plateau to the north. Will something from the south move all the way up here and, and take over? Uh, in the geologic record, yeah, something will. But is that what we can wait for as we try to adapt and tolerate these conditions as, as a society? That's usually not what we want to do. We don't have that time from our point of view of of surviving this and, and making sure that the impacts are as mitigated as much as we can. What are some of the ways that um, these questions are being tested? Like, how do you test or research whether or not you're going to lose certain species under future climate? I mean, that's a great question, and I think you would get multiple answers from different scientists. And so there's a range of approaches, and we can just walk through a couple. One of the very powerful approaches, and something that gets that is done in a number of studies just around Moab, are experimental efforts to 
create conditions we think will be somewhat somewhat of the norm under this future climate scenario. So if we if we look at the end of the century and we think it's going to warm by four degrees Celsius or five degrees Celsius, we crank up the heat on areas that have these organisms of interest. And we do that through a variety of experimental approaches. Sometimes it's infrared heaters, sometimes it's plexiglass chambers, some miniature greenhouses, for example. Um, some people put cables under the ground to warm the soil if they're interested in roots or things that live in the soil. So experimental approaches are one rapid way to get right at the heart of what are the mechanistic responses of organisms. Observational data fills another gap. So long-term records where people have been watching plants or animals and how, they re how their abundance patterns and population dynamics play out year after year after year, we can now go back and overlay that climate, uh, the, the both weather and climate record of that period of time to see how sensitive they are to the types of changes we think will be happening with climate change. Um, so combining approaches like that, observations plus experimentation are, are very are, are at the heart of what we need to be doing to to forecast where we think organisms will be most at home range-wise and which ones will be disadvantaged by climate change. The unfortunate aspect of this is while there's a lot of work going on, we just can't cover every organism that we're interested in. And we often can't manipulate in those experiments big areas. And so we have a, a plot-level approach where we're looking at a few square meters. And what we're talking about today, when we think about what the Colorado Plateau will look like, we're talking about landscape and ecosystem level questions. And even where ecosystems blur into each other, if we're talking about rain shifts, and that type of experimentation is really difficult to almost impossible. So we're left with a lot of use of that long-term data and that small-scale experimental information combined with modeling. And that's where the modeling comes into this uh, third, third really common and robust approach. But that's what we're doing right now is experimentation, long-term observation, and modeling approaches to really get at these questions of where do we think species are heading. And the most robust way of doing this is to not think about just one organism, but to start thinking about classes of organisms and putting them together and getting a sense of how they're all responding across all the experiments uh, at, a, at, a, at a high level to really pull that apart. Your research group, are you guys asking any of these questions directly or doing any research looking at we do, yes. Um, my research group is broad now since I recently moved to a new position. Um, so when I say my research group, it means a lot of different, <clears throat> a lot of different groups and a lot of different people at this point in time. And so I'm just want to put it up front. I'm taking as I talk about this, I'm not trying to take credit for other people's activities within the group, but I'm just talking about my larger community of people, uh, which includes some great scientists here in Moab. Uh, we have experimentation that ask questions about future climate change. Let's see both using experimental warming approaches and greenhouse characterizations. Uh, I work with some remote sensing and modeling scientists now, so they use satellite imagery and, and really, um, really high-end quantitative approaches to put all that information from that satellite imagery record, which now goes back several decades, to ask questions about how things are changing at a landscape scale. Uh, and I do a range of stuff personally. What I can take a lot of credit for is work with tree rings. And that has been a long and tried and true approach to understanding what was climate like in the past since trees record conditions in their rings by how much they're growing and there's elements that you can cut out of there and analyze chemically. Uh, so I use a lot of tree ring dendrochronological dendro approaches in my work in ecology to get at that, what, what, how, are, how are plants responding over the long term to these sorts of pressures. And so, yes, I'm involved in a variety of different research approaches. Uh, I think 
I think just a, uh, as a snapshot of how that's changed over my life as a scientist, when I first started down these research paths, there was a lot less integration and a lot less network networking among scientists. And now we realize the scale of the problems we're dealing with are so large and so beyond one individual that these types of networks of scientists and, and working in multiple locations and across all kinds of continents, using, coming from different angles, from the molecular all the way up to the, that ecosystem mapping with remote sensing, that is the way forward as a group. And so we're becoming a more integrative and multidisciplinary field when it comes to the climate change and the ecology of climate change. If we are expecting that we're going to lose certain plant types that are already living at their edge um, on the Colorado Plateau, you know, we don't know whether species will come in or how, how those communities are going to change exactly. Um, and then we expect, you know, potentially losses to some of these things that the, eco- the ecosystem provides. What are our, our options? <laughs> well, I guess as a couple of is to just bifurcate the answer you could do nothing and see what happens or you could try proactively to either protect species of concern there's a lot of effort toward that right species that we think we're going to be the most disadvantaged by climate change we're already attempting and in many cases effectively taking steps to try to protect them or help them uh, help them to find a refuge in a sense from this we can help species migrate. That's a controversial topic, but it's something that is more and more talked about. If we if we know that organisms from southerly or warmer locations, maybe low elevation, for example, are going to be able to survive at high latitudes or high elevations, maybe we help them get there sooner so that we're not waiting for that lag in their ability to track their niche. Because it may the niche may move so rapidly that they'll never be able to keep up with it. Um, these are the conversations we have at a... They, they vary from the practical to the impractical, but nothing is off the table as far as I, is, from my point of view in science, nothing is off the table right now of how we might mitigate the impacts of climate change. Now, I'm an ecologist and my primary goal as an ecologist is to determine what level of impacts and what types of changes we will see. I'm not a manager in that regard. And so one of the things that has been lacking historically when I mentioned these research networks is the question you just asked. Can this be used in an applied sense to actively anticipate and proactively manage an ecosystem or a landscape or even just a species to get out ahead of climate change? That is a bigger and bigger topic, but that integration between the scientists like myself who are trying to get the information about helping us to forecast what will happen and working with the managers who can make a difference in trying to maintain populations or whole communities of organisms is slow to keep up. And so I would, I would identify that as a research gap that we really need to fill quickly and, a, and an applied management gap that we need to fill quickly. Is it well enough understood of how things might change that you could take me mentally to a place around Moab and tell me what we might expect to see? So, for example, like what if we went up to sand flats and you could think of all the beautiful grasses around sand flats and the biocrest uh, and then there's some shrubs, and then there's a little bit of juniper around. Or is our understanding good enough that we can say how we might expect this community to change? It is actually, yeah. Of that particular community, uh, we would expect, um, let's start with the big organisms, the woody plants, the junipers, and the pinions that you'll see around sand flats. We expect the pinions to be reducing in number and the junipers to 
maintain or increase in number because junipers are really good at, at weathering droughts when they come along. We expect a lot of the shrubs to do okay or potentially improve uh, in their abundance patterns for similar reasons. However, some important plants that are very characteristic of the West, for example, sagebrush. Well, that's not a super common plant per se on sand flats, but we know of sagebrush, big sagebrush landscapes. Uh, at the southern parts of their range, we expect to lose them. Right? So if you think of a nice sagebrush uh, landscape around Moab or south of, uh, we expect them to disappear. Uh, they're vulnerable populations because sagebrush is tracking a much colder historical climate and uh, is going to be shifting north by all the available data. That's what it's telling us. As we move down in scale, we, um, we do expect some changes, not just in which plants uh, or which grasses and, and, and forbs, so which flowering plants do we expect there to be abundance changes in. We do expect some changes, but that's a tricky question because once we start changing things at a big scale, uh, those overarching canopy plants like junipers, and we start bringing in the potential for more disturbance because of a drier world, potentially more, um, more fire, for example, or if we, if we keep grazing an area, those changes are all interactive. And that's it gets a little bit more problematic of predicting where those species will go. But to not avoid the question, we do expect some of the grasses that are commonly seen on sand flats, the, the perennial bunch grasses, to be decreasing in number, to be decreasing in total density. And when we get all the way down to that soil surface with that biocrust, which we know and love so much here around Moab and the Colorado Plateau, the, the future is grim for a lot of the big biocrust organisms. The mosses and lichens in the experiments and in the observations that are being made, not just here in Moab, but globally, uh, with climate change experiments with biocrust, we see lichens and mosses not doing well in a warmer world. So we could be potentially losing one of the hallmarks in sort of poster organism groups, poster communities of the Colorado Plateau um, and seeing something quite different taking over the soil surface. And I've ignored all the animals because that's not my particular strong point, but you can always, anything that is not, uh, anything that has that level of dispersal ability, birds and animals, you can expect them to be tracking climate at a lot more rapid rate than plants. Um, so uh, another guest will have to tell you which ones are coming and going. What got you interested in global change ecology? Uh, fear. Absolutely fear. Um, I was interested in biology and ecology from a very young age. I went to college specifically already concerned about uh, pollution issues because I grew up in western Pennsylvania where acid mine drainage was a problem. And I had lived through some um, early epidemics of the gypsy moth, which deforested large areas of, the, of western Pennsylvania and West Virginia when I was a child. Those things were of a concern to me, but they felt manageable. And so I went to college with the idea of being a part of a solution to, to dealing with those types of pressures. And as I learned about global change and climate change specifically, it was a fear that really, I didn't know what to do with it. And so studying the problem was a way of dealing with that concern. Um, I think I've put the fear in the right place and now it's a strong motivation to try to do this type of work. But man, it feels, it feels weakly to me as a scientist who's now been doing climate change work for uh, 15 years or so. Not, not all my work is specifically climate change, but an element of it um, has been in my work for 15 years or longer. I have lots of concerns weekly, let's put it that way. There's, there's more denial now 
stronger denial, maybe not more, but stronger denial now than there has been at any point in time. And so as more and more people have engaged with the topic and have become concerned because it's no longer something just talked about by scientists, but now it's a general topic of public concern, you see that fear is a common motivator for other people too. And I hope they're going through my cycle where it becomes a motivator to let's, let's, let's fix this problem. Uh, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna stop warming at this point in time. Uh, we're all gonna live our lives in a world that keeps warming. But the question that we have before us now is can we do something proactively to, to put a cap on that and to lay the groundwork to reduce that effect in the long term? And we can if we get together and we stop denying and we start working. So the fear needs to be a motivator and I think denial comes from the same place. I think it's a concern over changes and what it'll mean that leads to that. And it's, it's a fear base. It's our reptilian self. So that's my answer. It's not what you expected, I don't think, but that's what it is. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? I think the thing that keeps me, that kept me coming back, I tried to get away. I tried to get out for a brief window of time. I think, you know, the path to becoming a scientist like myself, and I'm a, I'm a professor at a university now, it's a long path. It's, it's hard to find jobs. It's hard to, to know where you're heading. Um, there's not a lot of certainty early in the career. And so there were times when I tried to put it aside and do something else that had just seemingly to me more predictability of where I would be. And then I hated it. I hated the predictability of it. And so one of the things that's great about my job is I could wake up any morning in the coming years of my life and decide I want to study a topic or learn something new and I'm allowed to do it and I'm encouraged to do it. And I can get as excited as I want and find everybody else who's excited about it and build that community. And that is a norm of what we do. So the discovery and the community aspects of it and the excitement around getting answers to questions, I think that is at the heart of why I keep doing it. But I also just really connect to landscapes and organisms that I study. I just, you know, I really like them. And they come to feel almost like family members when you're, when you're used to them. You see... I see certain, uh, I'll use the example of pine trees, different species I work with. When I see them after being away from them for a long time, I get that happy feeling like I'm seeing friends again. Um, so when I see limber pine, when I drive to higher elevations or across Colorado and see them, I get excited to see limber pine again. Um, so all of that is at the heart of it. There's an emotional and just the pragmatic, like solving problem aspects of it that are exciting. Well, Scott, thank you so much for this interview. It's been really interesting to hear about your work and about our future here in Moab. Well, thanks for having me. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU. Thank you.